You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Okay, so let's say you're working a job way out in the middle of nowhere, maybe a science station in the frozen Canadian north. Despite sharing the space with a few other co-workers, you're feeling lonely and homesick. The weather is terrible, the food is worse, and all you want to do is escape, even for just one night. You share your feelings with the others and, as it turns out, they feel the exact same way. Then one of them speaks up. As luck would have it, he happens to have an enchanted canoe, just outside, that will whisk all of you home for one unforgettable night. Do you do it? Do you go? If you're familiar with French-Canadian folklore, or if you listened to the previous episode, you know the answer is no, run away! Folklore tells us that things probably won't end well. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. This is part two of my deep dive into the French-Canadian legend of La Chasse Galerie. If you're confused by what you just heard, go back and listen to part one, where I tell the story and provide you with a bit of historical context. For those who need a reminder, it's about a group of workers who, one winter's night, usually Christmas or New Year's Eve, make a deal with the devil. They risk their souls to travel home in a flying canoe and spend a few hours with their loved ones. Sometimes they narrowly avoid damnation. Sometimes they lose their lives and their souls. And sometimes they're cursed to repeat their journey forever. In this episode, I'll be going a little deeper, telling connected stories, discussing possible origins, exploring the meaning and symbolism found inside, and considering whether a story that's over 300 years old can still be relevant today. So settle in. I have a lot to share. Have you ever heard that famous country song, Ghost Riders in the Sky? If not, Google it. It's a classic. It's about an old man who has a vision of black-horned, red-eyed, steel-hooved cattle being chased through the air by the spirits of damned cowboys. Essentially, a more modern, American version of the Wild Hunt. The Wild Hunt is essentially a group of supernatural huntsmen galloping through the blackened sky in a wild pursuit of their prey. Often atop fearsome horses and accompanied by barking dogs, the hunt makes a deafening noise as it passes overhead, and its appearance is considered a foreboding presage of war, plague, or death. Very similar to how the people of New France felt about the burning canoes floating in the skies over Montreal back in 1660. The wild hunt will most often appear in the dark of winter, around Yuletide, the same time of year that, according to legend, some carreuses de bois traditionally fly in their canoe. And listeners are warned to close windows and doors and avert their eyes if they hear the hunt approach, lest they be snatched off the ground or even from their beds and forced to join its ranks. In some stories, the hunt carries the recently deceased to the afterlife, and the dead friends and relatives of the storyteller are spotted at the front of the pack. In others, the hunt is not a hunting party at all, but rather a group of spirits, possibly cursed, whose ultimate destination, if there is one, is unknown. 
The Wild Hunt is far too old and complex a myth to unpack here, but it's worth noting that, by the time the legend of La Chasse Galerie was being shared in New France, the hunt was a well-known phenomenon, considered to either be a party of the damned forced to ride a fruitless chase until the end of time, or a group of witches, demons, and evil spirits, often led by the devil himself, on their way to their dark sabbath. No one knows how far back the myth of the Wild Hunt goes, or where it's originally from, but it makes an appearance in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles of 1127, and Jakob Grimm, one half of the famous Brothers Grimm, documented German stories of the hunt in 1835. Countries all over Europe have their own name for the Wild Hunt. In England, the Wild Hunt was also known in some regions as Hurla's Assembly, Woden's Hunt, or the Devil's Dandy Dogs. The Scandinavians called it the Ride of Asgard, or the Hunt of Odin. And in France, though it's known as La Chasse Fantastique today, at one time, much of the country would have called it the Household of Heliquin, while those in the region of west-central France would have likely known it by a different name, La Chasse Galerie. And there is a legend that tells us why. A long time ago, in the west-central region of Poitou, France, there lived a lord who was known among his peasantry for his cruelty and his quick temper, his insatiable greed and his shameless impiety, and, perhaps more than anything else, his love of the hunt. Hunting was truly this man's reason for being. Nothing gave him more pleasure, and each day he would willfully neglect his lordly duties, gather his men and his hounds, climb atop his horse, and chase game across the countryside. His land and his people suffered under such neglect, and when an advisor or a church leader, too brave for their own good, dared to suggest that he should spend more time ruling and less time killing, he would sneer and mock them or clap them in chains and send them to the dungeon before riding off on his next hunt. One particularly holy Sunday morning, the Lord was begrudgingly sitting in church attending Mass when the service was interrupted by the sound of his hunting dogs growling at something outside. Yes, he brought his dogs to church. Of course he brought his dogs to church, but at the insistence of the clergy, he kept them tied up outside. The warning of potential prey was almost enough to stir the Lord from his pew, but a stern look from the priest kept him in his seat. The Lord was far more interested in sport than salvation, but today was an especially important day for the church, and even a man of his importance had to consider his soul from time to time. The sermon continued, only to be interrupted again just a few minutes later. The dogs were now in a frenzy, barking and snarling, pulling hard on their chains. The horses outside whinnied and stamped in excitement. Unable to contain himself any longer, the Lord leapt from the pew and rushed out the door, then quickly spotted the cause of the commotion. A beautiful white stag stood at the edge of the meadow. The most impressive and complex set of antlers the Lord had ever seen crowned its head. The Lord and his animals set upon it, chasing the stag across the clearing and beyond into the forest. They raced past trees and over rocks and fallen logs until the desperate animal dashed into a nearby cave, and the Lord knew he had his prey cornered. He dismounted and grabbed his weapon, but just as he was about to enter the cave, a gray-haired old man appeared at the entry and put his hands out to stop his approach. The old hermit explained that the cave was his home, 
and because the stag had sought refuge there on this holy day, it was now considered a sacred sanctuary. It would be a mortal sin to harm the stag while it was under his protection. The Lord scoffed at the hermit's warning, pushed his way into the cave, and shot and killed the stag. As punishment for this incredible sin, the Lord and his hounds were damned to ride the landscape and skies forever, in constant pursuit of an ethereal stag they would never catch. For centuries afterward, they say, the people of Poitou would occasionally catch a glimpse of the damned Lord riding across the sky. Some swore they heard the barking of his hounds and the thundering of his horse's hooves on the edge of an approaching storm. The Lord's name was Gallery, and this local phenomenon and its legend would become known as La Chasse Gallery, or Gallery's Hunt. At least, that's the story. But now there's one more story I'd like to share. Long ago, on the Canadian side of the Detroit River and along the shore of Lake St. Clair, the locals would tell stories of La Chasse Galerie, a spectral hunt that would occasionally appear in the sky. Sometimes, people reported a phantom canoe that was rowed by twelve men, often accompanied by a barking dog in its prow. At other times, the phenomenon would take the shape of a lone, shaggy black dog with drooping ears that would trot or run along the surface of the water, barking at unseen game. Rarely, the legend says only once every seven years, La Chasse Galerie would appear as a solitary horseman with a gaunt, bronzed face and a rifle in his hand, riding through the sky with a pack of dogs behind him. Whatever form it took, it would always head north, and to see it or hear it would be to know that death would soon pay you a visit. At a place known as Askin Point, there lived a hunter by the name of Sebastian Lasselle. Sebastian was a talented and dedicated hunter, born with a gun in his hand, people said, and his instincts and his aim were second to none. But sometimes even the best hunters miss their target, and that's just what happened to Sebastian one day when he shot and wounded a deer. He followed its trail through the woods as quickly as he could, hoping to get his final shot when he came upon a cabin set in a little clearing among the maple trees. A young girl sat at the front of the cabin with the deer now laying beside her. She hummed lightly as she caressed its neck and deftly dressed the wound in its side. Abandoning all his intentions, Sebastian immediately fell in love. Her name, he would learn, was Zoe de Mersac, and in time, she came to love him as well. Soon, they were engaged to be married. Time passed, and on the day before their wedding, the young couple were strolling along the beach in the bright September sun. Though both should have been excited about the future, Zoe was a mess. The night before, she had heard a screech owl in the willow tree near her window, and at the very same time, she heard barking dogs and ringing bells in the air a sure sign of La Chasse Galerie, and a warning that something terrible would soon happen. Their happiness, she feared, would not last. She told her worries to Sebastian, who laughed as he did his best to comfort her. La Chasse Galerie, he said, was superstitious nonsense. Nothing would happen, and there was nothing to fear. Yes, he was about to leave for his bachelor party, but he and the boys would party the only way he knew how one last hunt as an unmarried man. It would be fine. 
he'd leave that evening and be home in the morning. Though she tried her best to calm herself, Zoe still couldn't shake the dark and foreboding feeling that tightened in her chest. Even as his friends loosened the canoe from its moorings and stepped inside, Zoe called out to Sebastian from the shoreline and asked him to tell her again, one more time, when he would return. He laughed and said, Tomorrow at dawn, my love. Then he added with a smile, and with no respect for obvious foreshadowing, dead or alive. At first light, Zoe ran to the lake to welcome the hunters and her husband-to-be. She sat on one of the boulders that line its shore and watched the sun rise on her wedding day. But Sebastian did not come. The sun climbed further into the sky, and the wives, sisters, and mothers of the other men joined her. Nothing. Night came and the wind picked up. The other women begged Zoe to come with them to their homes, but she refused. She would stay and wait for Sebastian. He would be true to his word, she said. He had promised. As she sat there on the rocky shore, fighting the urge to sleep, the wind blew again and she thought she heard his voice. She looked up and saw him in a canoe hanging in the clouds. He called to her, I will come for you in a year and a day. Then the boat shot northward and disappeared in the autumn sky. By winter, Zoe seemed to fade a little more with each passing day. Doctors were baffled. The color died in her cheeks, the strength drained from her limbs, and soon she was an echo of her former self, wasting away without explanation under the heartbroken care of her parents. By the following September, Zoe, at the brink of death, begged her parents to dress her and bring her to the shore. Gently, her friends and family carried her to the lake, set her chair along the water's edge, and waited. Mists drifted in from the south, the sky grew cloudy, and Zoe's shallow breath, tattered and raspy for months, now drew more deeply. Suddenly, Zoe's body arched backward as she stretched her arms to point at the sky, a look of pure joy on her face. Sebastian, she cried. The others looked up and were shocked to see a phantom canoe drifting northward on some clouds just overhead. When they looked back to Zoe, she was dead. Sebastian had come. Her soul had left her body and finally joined her love in the endless autumn sky. The story you just heard is a long-forgotten legend, and a version of this is found on page 126 of an American book written by Marie Carolyn Watson Hamlin in 1883 and published in Detroit. The book is titled Legends of Les Détroits, and the story La Chasse Gallery, A Legend of the Canadian Shore. And as you probably noticed, it's very different from the tales found in Quebec. The author dates it to the year 1780 and claims that it's the best-known and oldest legend she has heard from, quote, some old habitant who has outlived her age and generation, end quote. In fact, similar to Honoré Beaugrand, the author of the most well-known French-Canadian tale of La Chasse Gallery, Hamlin assures us in her introduction that, quote, Many honest, upright people still living will testify to having seen this phenomenon at some period of their lives. End quote. Hamlin's legend appears again, with minor differences, in another American book, this time written by Charles M. Skinner and published in 1899, titled Myths and Legends Beyond Our Borders. 
Skinner's version is called simply The Calling of Zoe de Mersac, but he still makes reference to La Chasse Galerie in his narrative. And I find this story fascinating because it contains elements of all of the tales I've mentioned so far. Just like Lord Gallery, Sebastian is an obsessive and talented hunter who follows a deer through the forest and finds it in the care of a stranger who lives in the woods. But unlike the Lord, who scoffed at the stranger and struck down the animal, Sebastian falls in love with the animal's protector and spares the deer, potentially dodging a curse, but still fated for death. Lord Gallery seems to be in there too, as the bronze-faced rider of La Chasse Galerie who only appears every seven years. And then, of course, there's the black dogs who bound forth from the legends of the Wild Hunt and run northward across the sky. Also, just like many tales of the Wild Hunt, this legend makes it clear that seeing or hearing La Chasse Galerie is a predictor of death, and that the spirits of the dead will rise and join it on its journey to the afterlife. And who could miss our fabled team of canoers as another iteration of La Chasse Galerie, though this time, they count 12 among their ranks, and there's no mention of French folk songs. In fact, Skinner calls them, quote, fierce and silent men, end quote. If they weren't part of the story, if the visions of the spectral hunt were just limited to a lone horseman or a dog or two, and didn't include a canoe full of men, it would be easy to think that the popular Quebec version of La Chasse Galerie was inspired by this story, or something very much like it. One can imagine that Sebastian's bachelor party of hunters were eventually transformed to Carreuse de Bois as the tale made its way to Quebec. But like Sebastian, they ride in a flying canoe to visit their sweethearts. The difference, of course, is that Sebastian is already dead, returning from the afterlife to reunite with his beloved, whereas the Carreuse de Bois in the Quebec legend are cheating death by using the devil to hitch a ride on the spectral plane. Now, if you ask me, I think the eight Coureurs de Bois came first. Our paddling heroes already have a home in the imagery of this story, mentioned in passing, as if you should already be familiar with the image of a group of men in a flying canoe. Of course, if the legend of Zoe and Sebastian is older, the image of the twelve canoers could have been added later, rolled into the story with the same title to create some cohesion, sort of a greatest hits of La Chasse Galerie compilation we'll never know for sure. So now that we've covered three different stories of La Chasse Galerie, there is one burning question on everyone's mind. What does the term actually mean? I mentioned in part one that La Chasse Galerie is sometimes referred to in English as the bewitched canoe or the flying canoe, but neither is a direct translation. La Chasse Galerie literally means the gallery hunt. It's a name that's meaningless to most Anglophones and, outside Quebec, many Francophones as well. And that's because the term La Chasse-Galerie is used in only a few very specific parts of the world. No one can say for sure exactly what the term actually means, but there are essentially two different theories. It's either an allusion to the regional tale from west-central France about the cruel and hunting-obsessed Lord Gallery, or it's simply the result of a word corruption over time. Now, that first theory is great because it comes with a fantastic story. Who doesn't want to imagine some selfish, cruel lord being punished for eternity as the leader of the wild hunt? But there's the problem. Some experts suggest that the story isn't really a folk legend at all, that it came along well after the term La Chasse Galerie entered the local vernacular, 
and that it was actually made up to explain the strange term. This is supported by the fact that the spelling of galerie in the Quebec legend, G-A-L-E-R-I-E, all lowercase, doesn't match with the supposed Lord's name, capital G-A-L-L-E-R-Y. The second theory is much simpler. The anthropologist Jean-Louis Le Calec suggests that galerie is simply a corruption of the word galerie, a slang term for horse. So, la chasse galerie would essentially mean the horse hunt. Now, that makes a lot of sense when considering that la chasse galerie is likely tied to imagery of the wild hunt. Similar to Le Calec's theory, the Michigan author and historian from the 1880s, Marie Carolyn Hamlin, has a different idea. Galerie, she says, is a corruption of galère, a low, flat-built vessel with one deck and propelled by oars or sails. But it seems a bit odd that a story about a flying canoe would be named for a much larger, multi-oared ship. All things considered, I think Le Calec makes the most compelling argument. But whatever the case, regardless of whether the legend of Lord Gallery is authentic or not, regardless of whether Galerie is more closely tied to the imagery of a doomed French lord or a galloping French horse, it seems likely that the term and the story of La Chasse Galerie has its roots in the imagery and symbolism of the wild hunt. Many of the early settlers of what is now Quebec came from the west-central region of France and would have brought their stories, traditions, and vocabulary with them to the New World. The term La Chasse Galerie has evolved over time, and Le Calec notes that it has many meanings throughout French North America, if it means anything at all. Most commonly, people know it to mean clangor or din, essentially a loud, unpleasant sound and prolonged noise. But it's also used to describe the group making that noise, most likely a reference to the wild hunt and the racket it makes as it races across the sky. According to Le Calec, this definition is actually mirrored in the west-central region of France, where, he says, upon seeing a group of noisy children arrive home, a mother might exclaim, quote, Voilà! La chasse galerie! In addition, la chasse galerie carries an association with black magic and witchcraft on both sides of the Atlantic. An entry in Pascal Poirier's Glossaire Acadienne suggests that la chasse galerie refers to a popular belief that a deal could be made with the devil for supernatural favors. Belille's Dictionnaire Nord-Americain de la Langue Française defines la chasse galerie as, quote, the time of night when witches and werewolves stalk the earth, end quote. According to Le Calec, this spooky definition matches similar ones found in the folklore of the poitou Santon region of France. So that explains why the devil appears in the classic story, but what about the flying canoe? The wild hunt is traditionally on horseback, and as I mentioned, galerie might be a corruption of a word for horse. So how does a boat fit into the myth? Some have suggested that the Carreuse de Bois were inspired by First Nations legends about flying canoes, and combined that element with their knowledge of the wild hunt to make something new. Now that could very well be the case, we don't know for sure, but swapping some horses for a canoe isn't as big a leap as one might think. Just as horses were the main mode of transportation through Europe and the North American plains, rowing and portaging with birch bark canoes was the only way to get around the winding rivers, countless lakes, and dense forests of New France. All of this suggests that when our homesick and somewhat reckless heroes choose to run la chasse galerie, it could be a direct reference to the idea of making a pact with the devil.
or it could be a nod to that dark, unholy time of night when witches, werewolves, and black magic have more power over the lives of mortals, and when it may be possible to hitch a ride with a devil. Or it could suggest that the men and their flying canoe either join or become a unique version of the Wild Hunt. Or it could be all three. And that's why I love the ending where the men are cursed to paddle the skies every New Year's Eve. It satisfies all three definitions. By entering into a pact with the devil on a special winter's night and then becoming cursed, the men in the legend truly become a Canadian version of the Wild Hunt possibly influenced by the First Nations, but definitely influenced by the landscape and the culture of the New World. Instead of riding on horseback, they ride in a birchbark canoe. Instead of the thundering of hooves and the barking of dogs, their telltale sound is a French-Canadian folk song carried on the wind. Instead of a stag or a deer, they chase the chance to visit their loved ones and escape the isolation of the Canadian wilds. Their defiance of natural and divine laws and their subsequent punishment makes their story a Canadian tragedy. As for the versions where they survive the journey, even after everything goes wrong and they clearly violate the terms of the deal, those stories are perhaps even more Canadian. In a land that's a world away from kings and commoners, lords and servants, there's less need for cautionary tales about social boundaries or amusing stories where evil lords get what they deserve. These guys aren't spoiled, obsessive lords who deserve divine justice. They're regular working-class stiffs, forging their own path in a new world, and they miss their home. We tell these stories not because we want the satisfaction of seeing the upper class punished, but because we want the thrill of seeing people like us take a risk and, against all odds, get away with it. In my opinion, all of this makes La Chascalerie important. It could be one of the earliest examples of a uniquely Canadian legend originating from a European colony. But then there are scholars who've tried to discount it because, they claim, it's derivative. They say that it's just an old European folktale with some Canadian window dressing, and as such, it's not really an original story. Add all of the Frenchmen and furs and canoes that you want, they say. It's still just a rehash of the Wild Hunt or the legend of Lord Gallery. But to that I say, who cares? There's an ongoing debate about whether it was the French or the Belgians who first invented what the world calls French fries. But everyone can agree that fries are amazing. But then some Quebecois genius added fresh cheese curds and gravy to those fries and made something revolutionary and sublime. Poutine, a uniquely French-Canadian dish. In the same vein, hockey was first played in England but Canada developed the contemporary sport of ice hockey that we know and love today. The point is, though Canada has a short history compared to much of the world, it has a solid record of adding its own twist to something to make it uniquely its own. There's a book called Young Canada's Nursery Rhymes. It's one of the first children's books published specifically for the new country of Canada back in 1890. It's adapted from another book titled Young England's Nursery Rhymes. And do you know what makes it specifically for young Canada and not young England? Aside from a few missing rhymes, likely removed to save on costs, just one word is changed. On page 66, after Ba Ba Black Sheep and Simple Simon Metapiman, there's a rhyme that begins, 
In the merry month of May, when green leaves begin to spring, little lambs do skip like fairies, birds do couple, build, and sing. In the Young England version, it's the month of February when green leaves begin to spring. That's it. February was changed to May. They pushed spring up by three months because in Canada, there's no chance you're seeing any kind of green in February. Apparently, that makes the book representative of young Canada. Now, that's actually a good example of why it can be so difficult to find truly Canadian legends and lore to share on this podcast. So many books on the subject, especially the older ones, promise Canadian content, but end up just regurgitating the same old stories from Europe. They may be known and shared by Canadians, but they're not truly of Canada. I think La Chasse Galerie is truly Canadian. It's a story that has taken European elements and, through time and through telling, has both influenced and been influenced by the culture and the history of the area until it has become something distinctly unique. It makes you wonder, back in 1660, was the story influenced by the flaming canoes that were seen in the sky, or were the sightings influenced by this story? The legend of La Chasse Galerie continues to captivate the hearts and minds of French Canadians even today. It has its own stamp, its own beer. A tiny lake in southwestern Quebec bears its name. It's referenced in the log ride at Montreal's La Ronde Amusement Park, in music, and in the Olympics. In 2016, it even inspired an acclaimed feature film. But unfortunately, like a lot of French-Canadian culture, the legend is virtually unknown in the rest of Canada. And that's a shame, because stories like La Chasse Galerie aren't just part of our nation's history. They're part of a living culture within Canada, and provide a unique perspective on what it means to be Canadian and to call this land home. It doesn't matter what language you speak or whether you live in Gatineau, Medicine Hat, or Toronto. We've all struggled with feelings of isolation and loneliness. Living in one of the most sparsely populated countries on the planet, many of us know just how quickly those feelings can arise when we venture even a few kilometers from our front door and find ourselves in the wilderness of our own backyard. The need for connection to family, friends, and one's own culture is felt as strongly by new Canadians today as it was by the people who came from west-central France in the 17th century. It's a feeling shared by anyone who has traveled to a new, unfamiliar place and found themselves thinking of home. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, if you're in Quebec on New Year's Eve and you hear a French folk song carried faintly on the wind, look up if you dare, and you just might spot eight men in a birch bark canoe paddling their way across the sky. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Ryan Clark. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can support me through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.